You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC on ESPN 44, Holloway versus Allen, preview, predictions, and analysis. UFC on ESPN 44 takes place this upcoming Saturday night from the T-Mobile Center in Kansas City, Missouri, with a banger of a main event in the UFC's featherweight division between former featherweight champion. Some people believe him to be one of the greatest featherweights of all time, and you can't argue that. In the volume-heavy cardio machine known as Max Blessed Holloway, taking on Arnold Almighty Allen, the number one ranked featherweight in the division, or I'm sorry, the number two ranked featherweight in the division, and Max Holloway going up against the number four ranked TriStar standout in Arnold Almighty Allen in Arnold Almighty Allen's biggest test of his mixed martial arts career. Will the young gun put a stop and will Max Holloway pass the torch to Almighty or will the Blessed Express keep on rolling and potentially get another crack at the 145-pound featherweight championship? Who knows, but let's get this started with UFC on ESPN 44 predictions right now. All right, everybody. UFC on ESPN 44, Holloway versus Allen. This is a really solid fight night card, but before we get into that, let's talk about last week. Israel Adesanya is the new UFC middleweight champion. He catches Alex Pereira with the exact same combination that he hurt him with at the end of the first round in their first fight at UFC 281. The overhand right and the left hook. And this time, Pereira didn't only sit in a chair. He fell down, Adesanya hit him with a few hammer fists, and Adesanya gets his first victory over Alex Pereira, going 1-3 and three in the quadrilogy, and finally is the new UFC middleweight champion. I thought Pereira was doing a very, very good job in that fight. I thought we were on our way to an earlier finish than the last fight, which is exactly what I said in the breakdown of UFC 287. I thought that we were going to be on our way to a new, you know, we were going to be on our way to a uh, first successful title defense for Pereira. The low kicks were hurting Izzy. He was stopping him in his tracks. He hit him with the low kicks again, got him up against the cage. But the only thing is Pereira got overconfident. He didn't think that Izzy could hurt him. He dropped his hands and went with shots to the body, keeping his chin up in the air. Izzy timed it, rolled, bang, came back with the right hand on the counter. Got that little brief angle off to his side. Boom, right hand. Bang, left hook right after. I don't know why Pereira got overconfident like that so early in the fight. You know, it's not like Izzy was wobbled. It's not like Izzy, you know, in that instance was falling all over himself or like fell down and got back up. It was similar to the finishing sequence in the fifth round of their last fight. So I understand why he probably thought he had him out of there. But dropping your hands and going to the body like that, hitting him with the knee. I think, here's what I think. Izzy said he was playing possum. I think he was playing possum until he got hit with that knee. Pereira landed that knee up against the fence pretty clean, and I think that did rock Izzy a little bit. But he was able to get his bearings, roll, you know, slip to that rear side, come over the top with the right hand, bang. It was catching Alex earlier in the fight as well, but I do think Alex was up, you know, in that round. In the first round, I think Alex was up in terms of the overall round-winning moments. But overhand right, left hook. I mean, the only thing is Pereira is so tall, he's so long, he's so rangy that he's so reliant on using the, the marching forward tie style, but he kind of keeps his hands out in front of him, almost as if he's going to like check a kick off of his forearms, and he's just parrying 
catching, shooting the right hand, the left hook, moving off to the left, bang, the left hook, catching and shooting, bang, bang, bang. And I think he gets so reliant on the fact that he's so long and tall for that division that he can use you know, his length instead of actual fundamental defense. And that's the problem. And that's why he got caught by Izzy. But Adesanya is the new middleweight champ. I know he said that Alex doesn't deserve a rematch. 100% Alex deserves a rematch. He says, well, I gave him the title shot because of our history. And he had only beaten a few guys, you know, I get it. But he beat Sean Strickland, who was basically on the brink of a title shot at that point. And not only did he beat him, but he knocked him out in the first round. So I mean, Pereira deserves the rematch 100%. And Pereira is also 3-1 and one against Izzy. So I know some people jumping on the Chimaev fight. That's not happening. Chimaev is going to be fighting Paulo Costa apparently in October. That's what they talked about. So, you know, that's apparently going to be happening in Abu Dhabi. So if you take Chimaev off the table, there's really no other contenders. You're not going to give Whitaker another shot at the title. I mean, I don't think Vittori going to get a shot at the belt. You're not going to give Roman Delidze a crack at the title. I know Gaslam just beat. Chris Curtis on this same card, which that's another fight where Chris Curtis clearly wins the third round. The first round clearly goes to Gastelum. It really just depends how you score that second round. And I think that that headbutt that dropped Curtis made the judges sway that second round towards Gastelum. I think that if that headbutt um, collision of heads didn't occur, that Gastelum would have lost that decision because, you know, Curtis came on so heavy with the body shots, with the right hook, the uppercuts, the shots to the body, and was just draining Gaslam in that third round and clearly won it. So it really, I think it came down to the fact that, you know, he got hit with that headbutt and dropped. And even during the fight, when I was watching it with my buddy, I said, like, I don't even see what he got hit with. And he fell, and apparently it was a headbutt or a clash of heads. The ref didn't see it. So in the judge's eyes, it looked like a knockdown for Gaslam, but that's not what it was. So I think if that big moment didn't happen that Curtis could have won that decision. I think Chris Curtis could have done enough, but it wasn't like a robbery or anything. It was a very close fight. So I'm not mad that Gastelum got the the win by decision. So, you know, it is what it is, but going back to Pereira and Izzy, I think you have to book the, the next fight between them. I think you have to, you have to book a fifth fight or a third fight in the UFC. I mean, yeah, Pereira was losing the first one, but he knocked him out. I mean, he TKO'd him. Izzy then knocks him out, and now Izzy doesn't want to give Pereira a rematch because he doesn't deserve it. He knocked out Sean Strickland, man. Sean Strickland, then Sean Strickland comes back, um, loses that decision to Jared Cannonier, and then goes in, fights uh, Nazardine Imovov, who was a big prospect in the division, fights him on short notice, wins that fight dominantly by decision. And, you know, he's one of the top guys in the weight class. And like I said, before that loss to Pereira, that was basically going to be the next title challenger for Izzy in Madison Square Garden. Just so happened Pereira caught Strickland with the left hook, the follow-up right hands, and knocked him out cold. So I think Pereira 100% deserves the rematch. You, you can't really give the title fight to anybody else. And judging on the fact that, like I said, Costa is going to be fighting Chimaev, then I don't really see any argument here. And I know people are going to be some Izzy dick riders, you know, like, sorry for the language, but that's what some people are. And I love Izzy. I, I will tell you this, the entire time I've had this podcast, the only times I've ever picked against Izzy was the first fight, was the fight with Jan Blachowicz at 205, the first fight with Pereira, and then the second fight with Pereira. I have any other fight that Izzy's been in, I've picked Israel Adesanya to win. You can go back and check the podcast. I've always picked Izzy, so you can't tell me that I'm an Izzy hater or I'm an Izzy, not an Izzy fan. This is the first time I've picked an Adesanya fight and I got it wrong. And, you know, it, it happens. It is what it is. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I didn't deserve to get the prediction wrong. Yeah, I did. He knocked him out. 
you know, but I think if Pereira fights smarter and makes a few adjustments that Pereira beats him again, because we've seen it before. This was a big fight for Izzy. You know, I don't think it was as big of a fight for Pereira, even though he was the defending champion. And, you know, Izzy did what he had to do, and now he's the new middleweight champion. But you got to do Izzy versus Pereira 3 inside the UFC or the fifth fight between the two. I just think you have to do it at this point. Um, Co-main event, Masvidal. I think Masvidal won the first round, but judging off the takedown that Gilbert Burns got, maybe you give the first round to Gilbert. And then the second and the third were so clearly on the side of Burns. I mean, Burns hurting him on the feet, rocking him, taking him down, controlling him up against the cage. It was, it was the Masvidal retirement tour, but it was the Gilbert Burns show 100%. And, you know, Masvidal said after the fight he felt different. He just felt like he didn't have it, and I agree. Um, he just didn't look the same. He didn't have the same explosiveness. He didn't push forward as much as he should have. He was getting clipped with a lot more shots. He looked a lot better defensively in other fights, and I think he just looked slower and not as good defensively, and that's why he got caught by some of the big shots of Burns. But Burns clearly wins that fight. I think the next fight to make is, you know, Burns versus Colby, but it looks like Colby's going to be going up against Leon. If that doesn't happen, if they don't do Colby versus Leon, then I think you got to do Colby versus Burns. I think Colby versus Burns is the next fight to make for those fighters in the division. You know, I think that the welterweight fight should be Gilbert Burns versus Colby Covington. If they don't do that, then maybe you have to go, if they do Leon versus Colby, if that's next, then maybe they do Burns versus... Bilal Muhammad, because I can't really see any other aspects. I mean, I could see maybe they give Rachmanov, maybe they do Burns versus Shavkat, but I think they're going to make Shavkat fight at least like maybe one or two more times. My opinion, here's what I like. I like Colby versus Leon. I like Burns versus Jeff Neal. And then I like Shavkat versus Bilal. Those are like the fights that I like the most. And then you can't factor in Chimaev because it looks like he's going to middleweight, so Chimaev's going to fight Costa. But I like Shavkat and Bilal, um, Colby versus Burns, or Colby versus Leon, and then Burns versus, who did I just say? Oh, my God, I can't even think. Uh, Burns versus, uh, oh, my God, I just said it. Now I can't think of it. I'm drawing a blank. Um, Colby versus Burns. Yeah, right? Isn't that what I said? Colby versus Burns. Um, no, 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 no. Okay, okay. Colby versus Leon, Burns versus Jeff Neal, and then Shavkat versus Bilal. Oh, my God. I, I went off track, man. We got a lot to talk about, and I'm thinking about the fights we're going to be breaking down. Um, let's talk about one man and one man only. Rob motherfucking Font, baby. Rob Font comes in and knocks out Adrian Yanez in round one. When I broke down that fight, I told everybody that the first, the number one fight they needed to look at was the fight between Randy Costa and Adrian Yanez. The fact that Costa had a very good success rate with his jab, and he was pairing it up with high kicks, which were catching Yanez early in the fight, but Yanez was able to make the adjustments, work to the body, and then eventually get the TKO. The thing is, Rob's got the best jab in the division, one of the best jabs in the UFC. Kelvin Cater, same thing. Those guys out of the New England cartel, they have some of the best jabs in all of mixed martial arts. And that's exactly what was catching Yanez. The minute that jab started to work effectively, and he was able to double it, triple it, quadruple it up, Yanez was out of there. Yanez did some good work, man. He he countered Rob with the one-two down the middle. He was able to come off um, when Rob tried to use that single-collar frame to break off and land the uppercut up the middle. Yanez was able to come over the top with the right hand. He landed some good combinations earlier and busted up the face of Rob. 
but Rob was able to make the adjustments and the jab was able to get Yanez on the back foot. It was able to rock him, stumble him, and then eventually he gets that side stance, the parallel stance to Yanez, bangs him with the right hook, drops him, and gets him out of there in round one. Big statement win for Rob Font. Made a little bit of money on Rob, but man, I've been getting my ass kicked in terms of the betting perspectives from UFC, Bellator, PFL lately. So I definitely have to take a different approach. I think it's more staying away from parlays, big parlays, get, trying to get the big money on you know smaller bets and just playing larger bets, but on single fights and single fighters. Because the fight I won this week was the Rob Font pick over Yanez at plus 160. The other ones I looked okay. Like I had Piper by knockout. I had some other fights where I thought I thought Shylon was going to beat Steve Garcia, and he almost did. I mean, it was very close, but Garcia, um, Shylon shot to the wrestling and the grappling, and that's not what he should have done. I mean, he had Steve Garcia dead to rights. I understand you don't want to trade with Garcia because he does have big power, but at the same time, I think if Shylon would have landed a few more combinations on Steve Garcia early, that fight would have been over. He he shot, went to his wrestling, tried to take him down, allowed Garcia to recuperate, allowing him to get his bearings back, and then got knocked out by Steve Garcia. The durability on Nerdum BK is definitely something you're going to have to look into the next time he steps into the octagon. And, you know, even if he's a favorite or an underdog, you got to question the durability now of Shylon. So, you know, Steve Garcia gets that big win. Joe Pfeiffer knocks out Gerald Mearshart in round one. Um, I, I expected that. I know a lot of people were on Mearshart and Mearshart by sub, but... You know, every fight starts on the feet and the one, two right down the middle. I think it was a hook cross, maybe a hook cross, bang, bang, drops GM three, gets him out of there in round one. So yeah, I mean, overall the card was not successful. My picks were pretty trash, but there were some picks that I was proud of, especially the Rob font pick. Um, but you know, you know, those happen, man. I have been a little off. Um, my overall card picks have been decent. My betting perspectives have been off. And I think I just got to go back to the drawing board and look at it from a different perspective going into this next fight night, UFC Kansas City. And that's what I'm going to be looking to do. But let's do what we came here to do. Let's get into UFC on ESPN 44, Holloway versus Allen. And we're going to kick it off in the flyweight division on the prelims in one of the best fights on the card and a banger, a firefight, a fight that I am so excited for at 125 pounds. In the number four ranked, Brandon Raw Dog Royval taking on the number five ranked streaking contender in Mateus Nicolau. Nicolau and Royval. This is going to be fireworks from start to finish. These guys are two of the best flyweights in the entire UFC, two of the best flyweights in the world. Like, I, I know that this fight, this is probably going to be your fight of the night, aside from a potential fight of the night in the main event. I think Nicolau and Royval is your fight of the night. But we'll look into the statistics and the stylistics. Well, we'll look at the statistics first and then go into stylistics. But 14-6 and six for Brandon Rawdog Royval. He's on a two-fight win streak with wins over Match Danger Schnell. We have first-round guillotine choke. And then more recently, I believe he just got a victory over somebody else. Let me see. Maybe I'm wrong. But let's see. Who's the other guy he just beat? Rangelio Bunterin, maybe? Yeah, that was it. He got a split decision over Rogerio Bontarin in January of 2022. And then that guillotine choke submission in the first round over Matt Danger Schnell. The fight against Schnell was close, man. Like Schnell hurt him with the boxing. He rocked him. He wobbled him. He tried to jump on him. Went for a submission of his own. I believe he went for a guillotine of his own. 
and then Royval was able to reverse it and then catch Schnell's neck in a scramble and lock up that arm in guillotine with the shin across the belly, the foot over the opposite hip, and got the tap in round one. But the thing you know with Rod Dog Royval is this guy's going to be bringing volume. This guy's going to be bringing pressure. This guy's going to be getting in your face. He's going to be looking for the right hook from Southpaw, the left body kick, the right hook, the double jab, right hook, straight left, the right hook, the lead and rear knees right up the center channel uppercuts, knees, elbows, spinning elbows like he landed against Kaikar of France, great jiu-jitsu and submission ability. Like Brandon Royval is a tornado of violence at 125 pounds, but he's taken on a fighter in Mateus Nicolau, who's 7-1 in the UFC, 19-2 with one draw in his professional MMA career. Out of those 19 victories, he's got 10 finishes, 9 decisions, so pretty much neck and neck. But in the UFC, he's on a win streak of one, two, three, four. What is it? Six fights. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. So he's got eight, nine. He's got nine victories inside the UFC and one loss. The one loss came to Dustin Ortiz, got KO'd in the first round at UFC on Fox 30. And, you know, the rest of his fights, I mean, a submission via Japanese necktie over Alan Gabriel Dos Santos. A decision over Felipe Efrain, a split decision over Manel Kopp in a fight where a lot of people thought Manel had won that fight. I was on the side of Mateus Nicolau in that one. A unanimous decision win over Tim Elliott. Unanimous decision win over David the Undertaker Dvorak. That's a big win. And then a KO in the second round over Matt Danger Schnell. So the common opponents for these guys are, you know, they're Matt Danger Schnell. That's the most recent common opponent between the two. And they both got finishes over them, but in the, at the same time, Matt Danger Schnell gave Brandon Royval a lot more trouble than he gave Mateus Nicolau. He hurt him. He rocked him. He almost submitted him. The speed of the boxing combinations were too much for Royval on the feet. He got wobbled. He got stunned, I believe, with the left hook of Matt Danger Schnell. Nicolau was really in no danger against Schnell, and the fight was very, very lackadaisical. He was moving around, good lateral movement, in and out movement, switching stance to southpaw, going back to orthodox. He catches Schnell coming in, dropping his hand, boom, left hook, Russian style, catches Matt Schnell on the chin, drops him, he jumps on him and gets him out of there via TKO, actually knocks him out cold with the ground and pound follow-up shots. Nikolau is the most technical and sharp flyweight in the UFC. I've been very high on Nikolau. I've been high on his him and his UFC career. I do think Royval does, you know, cause some issues for Nikolau, but... I think he's an overall better grappler. I think he's smart enough to not get into bad positions if they do get into scrambles. I do think that there is a possibility that Royval can catch Nikolau in a submission, but at the same time, you know, you're looking at a guy who's very sharp, very technical, very cerebral in Nikolau. He doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes. And I know on some people's radar, they're saying, well, you know, Royval's going to push forward. He's going to put the pressure on Nikolau. He's going to be coming forward. And that's true. And that could give Nikolau some trouble. It could leave him open for shots. It could make him uncomfortable fighting off the back foot. But he's so used to fighting off the back foot, lateral movement, the check left hook, the one-two down the middle, the uppercut to the left hook. He's so sharp and his counter game is so good that Royval's going to be giving Nikolau ample opportunities to land those counters because he's going to be pushing forward. He's going to be going on the front foot. He's going to be pressuring Nikolau with big combinations, knees up the middle. And I think eventually he's just going to leave himself open to a big counter. Nikolau is going to bang that left hook, wobble Royval, hit him with an uppercut left hook, double jab, right hand. He's going to rock him. He's going to drop him. 
and I think he's going to TKO him, man. I know that Roy Balls would get Ben caught in submissions himself against the likes of Alexandre Pantoja. I could see maybe Nikolaou wobbles him and locks up a sub, but I have to go with Nikolaou here. He's the much sharper technical fighter. I do think Royval will give him some issues with the forward pressure, with the unorthodox striking, with the ability to catch opponents even when he's hurt. Like, Royval's a dangerous fight, and that's why I'm so excited for this fight because it's a big test for Nikolaou. But I think Nikolaou's technical ability, his lateral movement, his footwork – his ability to, you know, counter moving backwards, his counter game off the back foot. It's going to cause a lot of problems for Royval when Royval's going to be the guy who's pushing forward and pressuring. That's going to give Nikolaou some uncomfortability, but it's also going to allow Nikolaou ample opportunities to land his superior counter game. And that's why I have to go with Mateus Nikolaou. I'm going to go with Mateus Nikolaou to improve to 20 and 2 and 8 and 1 in the UFC or 10 and 1 in the UFC, I believe, if I read the, the records right via a second round TKO victory. I think the first round is going to be madness. I think Royval is going to have some success, but eventually he's going to get hit with that left hook off a counter, dropped and TKO'd. So Mateus Nicolau to defeat Brandon Raw Dog Royval via a second round TKO victory. And I believe Royval is ranked number five in the division, and then Nicolau's ranked number four. Uh, I'm sorry, number four, Brandon Royval, number five, Nicolau. So the number five, ranked Mateus Nicolau to improve to 22-1 and one and defeat Brandon Rodog Royval via second-round TKO victory. When it comes to the betting perspective, I like Mateus Nicolau on the money line. He opened at like a minus 165. Now he's all the way up to a minus 205. So if you're going to jump on him, I would say jump on him now. My second favorite bet, but I'm a little bit more weary about it, is the under 2.5 rounds for this fight. Just in case you think Royval locks up a sub or stuns Nicolau and catches him in a sub because we have seen him hurt before and finished by Dustin Ortiz, um, then maybe you play the under 2.5. That's better odds than taking just Nicolau on the money line at a minus 205. I'm going to pull that up for you right now. Just give me one second. Um, if it's going to load for me, maybe I'll just pull it up on here. Let's see. see yeah here we go okay so on the money line you've got Mateus Nicolau sitting at a pretty big favorite uh, minus 205 I like Nicolau on the money line but I also like the under two and a half that's at minus 120 so if you think there's going to be a finish if you think Royval has the chance of catching a sub then I would say the best play is the under 2.5 at minus 120 but my favorite play is Mateus Nicolau on the money line at a minus 205 it's getting bigger to the point where I kind of don't want to touch the money line. Like if it gets any higher than that, like minus 220, 230, I don't love it. I mean, but I could see him a lot more money coming in on Nicolau. But the pick is Mateus Nicolau to finish Brandon Royval via second round TKO. All right. And now we move to the featured prelim in the featherweight division between Bill El Senor Perfecto LGO, who comes into the fight with a record of 16 victories and seven defeats going up against downtown TJ Brown, who comes back with a record of 17 victories with nine defeats. Let me just check and make sure those records are right. Cause I did get the records off the UFC website, uh, 16 and seven for Bill 
LGO and then 17 and 9 for TJ Brown. This is a very competitive fight and a very close fight. If you're going to ask me who I'm a bigger fan of, that's going to be Bill LGO. I'm a bigger fan of LGO, El Senor Perfecto. I like his style, a lot of stance changes, angle shifts, a lot of lateral movements, switching between southpaw and orthodox, landing his long rangy strikes, the one twos, the jab cross, the hooks the uppercuts, the front kicks to the body, really good with knees up the middle, similar to Brandon Royval, who we just talked about. Catching opponents on level changes, landing knees up the middle. He caught Ricardo Lamas in his UFC debut with a big knee to the chin. Um, the only thing I worry about with Bill Elgio in this fight, I think he's the more well-rounded fighter. I think he's more versatile. I think he has better overall striking and mixed martial arts ability. You've seen him getting good scrambles. You saw against Herbert Burns, almost got submitted, but... Herbert Burns blew his wad, you know, no pun intended. He blew his wad, got hurt, you know, did, you know, didn't get hurt, but gassed out going for submission attempts and then got TKO'd in the second round via ground and pound by LGO because he couldn't stand up. He was exhausted. LGO survived, came forward, and was going to put him away either way. In his last fight, he goes up against Andre Feely, and he loses via split decision. That was a fight where I was very confident on the side of Bill Elgio to be able to outstrike Feely because he was going to entertain the wrestling more than the, or the striking more than the wrestling and the grappling. The thing is with the defense, sorry guys, the thing is with the defense of Bill Elgio, he's very reliant on head movement, you know, darting in and out, angle shifts, lateral movement, hip bumps, and he rolls with his punches. He doesn't keep his hands up. He rolls, he pulls, slip, slip, roll, pull away, come back on counters. And the head kicks from Andre Touchy Feely were catching Bill Elgio all night. And that's the reason he lost that fight. He was getting caught with big head kicks. The speed of the speed of uh Andre Feely was giving him a lot of trouble. And he was touchy feeling him up. Touchy Feely, man. He was touching him up. No, you know, same name as the podcast, pretty much. With TJ Brown, he's gonna be at a disadvantage with the overall striking on the feet. But TJ Brown does have decent boxing. He does have decent ability to close the range and land good one-twos, jab crosses, left hooks. But his big bread and butter, his main path to victory in this fight against LGO is to get takedowns when LGO moves. The way that LGO moves and turns and slips and rolls, he gives up his back a lot in transitions. He gives up his back with the spinning techniques. He's off balance a lot of the time because of the heavy reliance on the footwork, the in and out movement, and he can give up positions and get taken down. LGO is a good scrambler though, and TJ Brown has had problems with getting those takedowns, but then getting reversed. But the one thing that TJ Brown is very good at is using the head on the inside single leg attempt from the bottom position to get into the top position and reverse to control on the top from the backside control with the one hook in, you know, similar to the Khabib positioning that he loves the backside control with the one hook in up against the cage, transitioning to a mount up against the cage, controlling the wrist, grabbing the back referee's position, grabbing the wrist, breaking down the base controlling leg lacing and looking to land ground and pound and look for submissions. But I think LGO does have good enough grappling ability to where early on, he will be able to scramble with TJ Brown and on the feet. I do give the advantage to LGO, but I can see a path and I can see a place where TJ Brown beats Bill Elgio because of getting more takedowns, because of recruiting top control time, because of constantly working to push 
Bill Elgio back and get that top control, get those takedowns. And that's something with Elgio that you have to understand is every fight that Elgio's in, he makes it a close fight. So if he makes this a close fight on the feet, but then the takedowns, the grappling, the top pressure, the control of TJ Brown is going to make the judges feel like he did more overall, then they're going to give the decision to the underdog in TJ Brown, downtown TJ Brown. He's sitting at a, what is he on the money line right now? Plus 160, something around there. Let's see. He's plus 170. Bill Elgio minus 200. I don't think Bill Elgio should be minus 200. Who am I a bigger fan of in this fight? Bill Elgio. Whose style do I like more? Bill Elgio. Who I think more is more dangerous? Bill Elgio. Who do I think has more weapons in their MMA game? Bill Elgio. Who do I think is going to win the fight? TJ Brown. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to be honest. I think Brown's grappling his takedowns. Yes, his takedown accuracy isn't the best. If we look at the grappling statistics for both of these men, Takedown accuracy on the side of Brown is at a 56%. So basically for every 10 takedowns he shoots, he gets about five of them, sometimes six. Takedown accuracy on the side of Elgio, 38%. Takedown defense, though, 38% on the side of Brown, but he's so good at scrambling and using the head on the inside single attempt to work off of his back, stand up, and push the opponent up against the cage. Bill Elgio's takedown defense is at a 50 he does not really try to stuff the takedowns because of his movement, because of his loose footwork style on the feet, because of the in and out movement, the footwork, the head movement. He's open for wrestling heavy game plans. And that's what I expect TJ Brown to look to employ here. Heavy wrestling, heavy takedowns. I think he's got the cardio to push the pace for 15 minutes. I mean, we saw in the Eric Silva fight, they went scramble for scramble. You know, Eric Silva did really good work reversing position, getting into the top and going, you know, scrambling like a bunch of scrambled eggs. But eventually TJ Brown wore out Eric Silva, was able to out scramble him, out pressure him, get the top control, work from the backside control, eventually work to the top position and get the arm triangle choke submission on Eric Silva. That was a fight where I was pretty big on Eric Silva, I think. And TJ Brown shut a lot of naysayers up because I think a lot of people were heavy on the side of the contender series fighter and Eric Silva. But I think the wrestling of TJ Brown, the grappling, the scrambling ability, the relentless pressure is going to give Bill Elgio a lot of trouble. And I see TJ Brown scoring a decision win here as the plus 170 dog. I'm going to go with TJ Brown to out-wrestle, out-scramble, and out-grapple the more well-rounded fighter in Bill Elgio because he gives up so many takedowns and gives up superior positioning on the floor because he's not so many, not so much worried about the takedowns and more just worried about styling on you on the feet. And I think that that approach is going to cause him a lot of trouble against a heavy, heavy wrestler and a heavy wrestling game plan that TJ Brown is going to employ. So my pick is going to be downtown TJ Brown to come in as the plus 170 underdog and defeat Bill El Senor Perfecto Elgio via a 29-28 unanimous decision. When it comes to a betting perspective, I don't love this fight from either side in terms of a betting perspective. I think this fight is very close. I just have to work with the grappler here, and I have to favor the grappling ability of Brown. Um, I would say if you're going to bet it either way, you probably want to play the over because I think the fight does go to decision, but I do not mind the shot on the dog at a plus 170. I would say stay away from it overall. Don't bet it. But if you feel like you have to, I would take the shot on TJ Brown at plus 170, or I would take the over 2.5 rounds, depending on what that's listed at. And I think I can check that right now. 
The over two and a half right now is at minus 210. So even if you're on the side of LGO, I don't think LGO finishes him. So maybe instead of the minus 200, you just take the minus 210 at the over 2.5 rounds. But I am going to side with TJ Brown, downtown TJ Brown, to win via 29-28 unanimous decision on the scorecard. So give me downtown TJ Brown to defeat Bill El Senior Perfecto LGO with a heavy grappling-based game plan as the plus-170 underdog via 29-28 unanimous decision. All right, and now we move to the main card with a battle in the UFC's bantamweight division between top 15-ranked contenders. In the number 9-ranked, Pedro the Young Punisher Munoz coming into the fight with a record of 19 victories with 7 defeats and 1 no contest. Going up against Chris Gutierrez, who comes back with a record of 19 victories, four defeats, and two no contests. Chris Gutierrez and Pedro Munoz, man, this is a banger. This is a great matchup on the main card. Uh, Munoz obviously has fought the better competition. He's he's a big, heavy, you know, big on pressure, big on the front foot, really good boxing ability, and really solid low kicks. The one thing that Pedro Munoz is very effective with is his Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I believe a BJJ black belt, great submission ability, great front chokes, guillotine chokes. I believe he caught Rob Font in a guillotine choke earlier on in his career, one of the losses that Rob Font has inside the UFC. He's got really good ability to hurt you with the boxing. He knocked out Cody Garbrandt, a former champion earlier in his career, went back and forth with Frankie the Answer Edgar in a very close five-round fight in a UFC fight night main event where Edgar moved down to 135 pounds. He lost that fight via split decision, I believe. Um, really solid competitor in Pedro Munoz. It's just sometimes he can't put it together because he's so heavy on the pressure and the forward movement that he gets countered all the time. He's open for counters. Go back and watch the fight against Sean O'Malley even. Even though that fight was closer than a lot of people thought before the you know, unfortunate eye poke and the no contest. But, you know, Pedro Munoz was moving forward, but he was getting hit by some big shots from Sean O'Malley encountered the longer the fight went, but he was landing really solid low kicks. He's got a really good tie style across the legs, low kick, really good calf kicks. We've seen Pedro Munoz use very solid calf kicks in that rematch against Jimmy Rivera, which was basically a phone booth war. I mean, they went back and forth and Munoz just chopped him down, killed his legs and then worked the boxing up top once Jimmy Rivera wasn't able to move as effectively. He's got good boxing, really solid power. That's the one thing in the young Punisher, man. He's got power. If he catches you on the chin, he can hurt you and he can push you to sleep. But he has issues with guys who are very technical, guys who have a lot of speed, guys who have a lot of power with that speed, and guys who are very good with the footwork and the movement. Because Munoz is decent with the movement, but he's more of a forward pressure. He's more of a linear fighter, moving forward and backward, not so much using lateral movement to try to cut you off unless he's trying to set up the, the boxing combos to land the low kicks as you're in a stationary position. It's a tough fight for Chris Gutierrez, but man, on the side of Chris Gutierrez, man, this guy is very technical. He's got a lot of speed. He's got heavy power in his kicks, very solid jab, right low kick, switching stances. He loves to switch 45, switch from orthodox to southpaw, go back to orthodox, square up your hips, jab, jab, one, two, left hook, right low kick, right kick to the body, front kicks up the middle, 
you know, very technical, good movement, good angles, good footwork in and out, left and right. And he's very good at running the opponents into big shots. The only thing is sometimes he gets trapped up against the cage and getting put up against the cage against Munoz with the big power that he has can be a problem because you don't want your back to the cage against Munoz. But the speed advantage in this fight is 100% on the side of Chris Gutierrez, man. He has the speed advantage a hundred percent. He's going to be faster. He's the more technical striker overall. Mixes up his punches, his kicking game, his elbows. He's got two spinning back fist knockouts in the UFC, which is something you don't see very often. One against Dana Botrigal, and then one against, let's see, who is the other one? I think the other one is in the UFC, right? Let's see. Oh, and his nickname is El Guapo. So Chris El Guapo Gutierrez. Um, then TKO with the spinning back fist over Dana Batragal. And then he got another TKO, I believe, in the UFC with that. Um, maybe not. Okay, so he got the spinning back fist. Um, he landed it early, maybe. And then he got a unanimous decision over Andre Ewell, a split decision over Felipe Corrales, the TKO against... Dana Botrigal or Botrigal, Botgarel, sorry. And then most recently at UFC 281, the biggest fight of his career, the biggest win of his career, he got a knockout in the first round, timing Frankie Edgar's level change with a knee right up the middle. But he was fast for Edgar, the jab, the low kicks, the body kicks. He was just too fast for Edgar and Edgar couldn't find him. He was moving laterally, keeping the range, keeping the distance, keeping him at the distance and range that he wanted to keep the opponent at. Jab, low kick, one, two, low kick, jab, hook, Right low kick, front kick, knees up the middle, spinning elbows. The guy is very good from a range. From coming out of Factory X, his his range striking, striking at range is absolutely incredible. And going up against a guy in Pedro Munoz who's going to be looking to move forward, who's had issues with guys who are going to be at a speed advantage against him, which Chris Gutierrez is going to be at. He's going to have more speed. He's going to be more technical. He's going to have more power overall in his complete mixed martial arts game. But I think like the one-shot KO power more comes from the side of Pedro Munoz. But we've seen him have issues with guys who move a lot, guys who have good lateral movement, good footwork, good ability to mix it up between the punches and the kicking game, a full striking arsenal. I think Pedro Munoz does have the ability to hurt Chris Gutierrez on the feet and then maybe grab his neck in a guillotine, get him caught in a scramble, grab a front choke, lock up the guillotine. Like Munoz is going to have the submission ability. He's going to have the grappling upside. But when it comes to the grappling on the side of Gutierrez, I don't believe he has that bad of takedown defense. I mean, he's got a 73% takedown defense and Munoz only has a 20% takedown accuracy, which is something that he doesn't really go for takedowns. He's looking to stand and bang with you. His pressure fighter, boxing, brawling, low kicks. He's like a Thai style brawler is Pedro Munoz, but it more comes from the hands with the boxing and then the low kicks. But he does loop his punches a lot. And I think the cleaner striker, the more clean overall fighter, the more technical fighter, the faster fighter, that's all on the side of El Wapo and Chris Gutierrez coming out of Factory X. I think he's going to be too quick for Pedro Munoz. I think the low kicks, the body kicks, the jab is going to keep Munoz at bay. He's going to be able to counter the wide punches of Pedro Munoz. And I think this is actually an awful matchup for Munoz to get back on track. I mean, if you look at Pedro Munoz's last few fights in his MMA career. He's 19 and seven, but recently 
He's gone one in four in his last five fights, and then with the one no contest to Sean O'Malley. Lost to Dominic Cruz, unanimous decision, unanimous decision, lost to Jose Aldo. Uh, split decision loss to Frankie Edgar, and Chris Gutierrez knocked out Frankie Edgar in the first round with that big knee. Um, and then the unanimous decision loss to Aljamain Sterling. Last win coming over the former champion in Cody Garbrandt via first-round TKO, and that was a fight where Cody kind of gave up that fight himself. He stood in the pocket, brawled, no defense, and Pedro Munoz just caught him when he had his hands down. Before that, he got the win over Brian Caraway via TKO, um, a unanimous decision over Brett Johns, a split decision loss to John Dotson, a submission to Rob Font. So I was right. The last submission he had in his UFC career came via guillotine choke against Rob Font. So Munoz has fought the better competition. Munoz has been in there with some of the best, Aldo, Dominic Cruz, Aljamain Sterling, the current bantamweight champion, Cody Garbrandt, you know, Rob Font. He's been in there with the best of the best. Uh, Frankie Edgar, it's just, I think that the time has passed on the young Punisher. And I think the younger or I think the more well-rounded, the fresher fighter, the faster fighter in Factory X's Chris El Wapo Gutierrez is going to be able to pick apart Pedro Munoz on the feet. He's going to be touching him up. He's going to be picking him apart, keeping him at a distance, landing the inside and outside low kick, switching stance, landing the body kick, landing the outside low kick, left hook, one, two, right low kick, switch stance, left body kick, deeps to the body, uppercuts, elbows. I think that Chris Gutierrez is a problem in this division, and I think he's going to be a big problem for Pedro Munoz here. So I'm going to go with Chris Gutierrez to be able to pick apart Pedro Munoz at range and stop him from being able to pressure him and close the distance to land his big power. And I'm going to go with Chris El Wapo Gutierrez to defeat Pedro, the young punisher Munoz via 29, 28 unanimous decision. I don't think he finishes him because Munoz has never been finished in his UFC career, but I do think the number 13 ranked Chris Gutierrez is going to be quicker, slicker, and more technical on the feet and just be too much for Pedro Munoz at range and stop him from being able to close the distance and land those big power shots. So, Number 13-ranked Chris El Wapo Gutierrez to defeat the number 9-ranked Pedro Young Punisher Munoz or Pedro the Young Punisher Munoz via 29-28 unanimous decision. Betting perspective, I love Chris Gutierrez on the money line here. He was at like minus 180, minus 190. Now he's all the way up to like minus 210, I believe. Let me check that out real quick. I believe he's like a minus 210 somewhere around there. Um... Chris Gutierrez, Pedro Munoz. He is a minus 215, so a pretty hefty price tag on Gutierrez, but I think the money line's about right just based on the stylistic matchup. Um, I like Chris Gutierrez on the money line. Uh, I do like the over 2.5, but it's minus 210. If you're going to play the over 2.5, then just take Gutierrez on the money line at a minus 215. I know that's a pretty big price tag, but he's one of my more confident plays for this weekend. And for UFC Kansas, I love Chris Gutierrez as a betting pick. So I'm picking Chris Gutierrez to defeat Pedro Munoz via decision and crack his way into the top 10. But I like Chris Gutierrez on the money line at a minus 215 for one of my more confident plays at UFC Kansas City. All right, and now we move to the co-main event of the evening in another phenomenal matchup in the UFC's 145-pound featherweight division and the former UFC lightweight contender in the number 14-ranked Edson Jr. Barbosa taking on powerhouse, not so much a powerhouse, but a pressure fighter, a moving forward, in-your-face, just-bleed type of fighter, old-school mentality with Billy, Billy Q. Quarantillo. I don't think that's his actual nickname, but Billy Quarantillo versus Edson Barbosa. 
22 and 11 on the side of Edson Jr. Barbosa to 17 victories and four defeats on the side of Billy Quarantillo. Um, this is a phenomenal matchup. This is a very tough test for Billy Q, but in the same regard, it's a tough test for Edson Barbosa. Barbosa recently in his UFC career has had a lot of issues with some of his recent fights, but looking at the caliber of opponent, he's got, he's lost his last two fights. One via third round TKO to Giga Chikadze, where early in the fight, it was back and forth. They were going back and forth in the kickboxing and, you know, Barbosa had some good moments, but he got caught and then got TKO'd by Giga. Then you look at his fight with Bryce Mitchell and he just really couldn't get anything going. He was so worried about the takedowns that he left himself open for big strikes on the feet. Barbosa got caught with a hook cross right down the middle and actually got dropped, taken down. Um, controlled from the top position. And we've seen him have issues with wrestlers, heavy grapplers, Habib Nurmagomedov, Bryce Mitchell, Kevin Lee, who's going to be making his return to the UFC. He's had a lot of issues with that. But after he lost that fight to Dan Ige at UFC on ESPN 8 via split decision, in a fight where I think he actually did enough to win the decision, he had the bigger moments, he dropped Ige. I don't really see how he lost that fight to Dan Ige, except maybe on volume. But Edson definitely had the bigger moments. So he should have been technically on a three-fight win streak going into that fight against Makwan Amir Khani, but he beats Makwan Amir Khani via unanimous decision at 145. Then he goes in at UFC 262, and he knocks out Shane Burgos in the third round. That was a fight where a lot of people were heavy on Shane Burgos, and I picked Edson Barbosa to win that fight as an underdog. I think he was plus 120, plus 130, somewhere around there. Could have been even an even bigger underdog, to be honest, but I was really heavy on the side of Barbosa because of the speed, because of the boxing, because of the kickboxing. Barbosa is so clean, technically. He's got some of the cleanest Muay Thai in all of mixed martial arts. The switch kick to the body, unbelievable left switch kick, right low kicks, left hook, right low kick, one, two, left hook, right low kick, left hook to the body, right kick to the body, one, two, lead switch kick. The speed and power that this man can generate on the feet. It's unbelievable. The technique is unbelievable, but he has issues with guys who can use a heavy grappling game, which Billy Quarantillo is not going to do, and also can use a heavy forward pressure game, which is exactly what Billy Quarantillo is. You look at the side of Billy Quarantillo, He's coming in 17 victories, four defeats. Out of those 17 wins, he's got 13 wins by way of uh, finish, eight KOs, five submissions, four wins by decision. Out of his four losses, he's been knocked out one time, lost three decisions. Billy Quarantillo is durable, but he takes a lot of damage. Last fight, he wins via TKO in the second round over Alexander Hernandez. Early in the fight, he was getting pieced up. He was getting picked apart, the faster fighter was Alexander Hernandez. The boxing was was too fast. He was hurting him on the feet, but he tired him out. He pressured him. He kept moving forward, got in his face like the Terminator that Quarantillo is, eventually slowed him down, got in the clinch, uppercuts, dirty boxing, elbows, knees to the body, and that's exactly what Quarantillo did to make Alexander Hernandez wilt. Billy Quarantillo is going to make you wilt. He's going to push you back. He's going to try to suffocate you under the pressure and continue to push you back until you have nothing left to give. You throw sloppy punches. He'll tie you up in the body lock up against the cage, land knees, land knees to the thigh, elbows, one, two. He's very good with the left overhand. He throws like a left overhand style of lead hook and then comes up the middle with the uppercut. So you're in kind of a side stance. He jab, jab, Left overhand hook, right uppercut, left hook to the body. That's a very common combination that he likes to use, and that kind of mixes in with the dirty boxing that Quarantillo is known for. Left hook over the top, right uppercut. But he has problems with technical strikers. He has problems with people 
problems with people who are very technical, very clean, and who have very good footwork. Now, I wouldn't say Barbosa has the best footwork, but he's good on the bicycle. He has decent lateral movement, very light on the feet, but he has had issues with his cardio. If you can push him back, pressure him, and get him on the back foot. The more you push Barbosa back, the more he's going to be thinking you're going for takedowns. He's going to leave himself exposed, kind of like what he did against Bryce Mitchell, or he's just going to be throwing sloppy because he's so worried about the forward pressure. This is a fight where it could obviously go, it could honestly go either way. I could see Quarantillo losing the first round badly, getting pieced up, but then tiring out Barbosa in the second and the third with the forward pressure, the dirty boxing, the uppercuts, the elbows, the knees, the one twos, the left hooks. And the knees to the body, elbows, pushing against the cage, constant combinations up against the fence with decent power and making Barbosa wilt. But I could also see Barbosa getting on the bicycle and picking apart Billy Quarantillo from range. He had a lot of trouble in that Shane Burgos fight. That was a fight where I picked Burgos to beat Billy Q. But he had a lot of trouble with the boxing, the technical ability, but he did push forward. He did pressure. He had some good moments, but he got hurt by Shane Burgos, got rocked. You can't always take MMA math into consideration with every fight because MMA math doesn't always work. But Burgos got knocked out by Edson Barbosa with a beautiful overhand right over the jab. And then, you know, he kind of shut down, backed up, and his body just shut down and got knocked out. And then against Billy Quarantillo, he actually dropped Quarantillo a couple times. He hurt him with the big with the good boxing, which isn't a knock on Quarantillo because Shane Burgos is boxing, his pressure fighting. It's unbelievable. And he was doing very good work against Barbosa in that second round, you know, before he ended up getting finished later on in the fight. But, you know, at the same time, it's like you have to look at this from a stylistic standpoint. And Billy Q, yes, is a good pressure fighter. Yes, he'll probably win the third round if it gets that far. He'll probably win the second half of the second round. If he can get in the face of Barbosa and pressure him, push him back, Billy Q should win this fight. But the technical ability, the striking, I think this is going to be pretty similar to the fight between Dan Hooker and Edson Barbosa. I think you're going to see Barbosa catching Billy Q on the counters. He's the much faster fighter. He's the much cleaner technical fighter. The kicking, the Muay Thai, the overall kickboxing ability of Barbosa is going to be very effective against a guy who moves forward and pressures like Billy Q because he's going to be open for counters. It's just can Barbosa's gas tank hold up for 15 minutes? Can he keep that pace up for 15 minutes against a pressure fighter like Billy Q? We saw him do it against Makwan Amir Khani, but he was more forward pressure and moving forward with the grappling, which made him a little bit worried about the grappling in Barbosa's case. Billy Q is probably going to look for some takedowns to push Edson Barbosa up against the cage, work from the body lock, work knees, work elbows, work body shots. But I think that this is a very difficult matchup for Billy Quarantillo as well. It's difficult for Barbosa, like we said, because of the pressure, because of the constant combinations and, you know, pushing Barbosa on the back foot. He does have issues with pressure, pressure fighters historically in his career. But at the same time, Quarantillo leaves himself open. He takes a lot of punches. And if we look at the significant strikes, the volume, like I said, is going to be on the side of Billy Q. Pressure forward, volume, heavy punches, nonstop movement. 7.88 strikes landed per minute to 3.96 for Barbosa. So he's almost doubling them up at four strikes a minute per for Barbosa to eight strikes per minute for Quarantillo. 44% significant strike accuracy rate for Barbosa to 58% significant strike accuracy rate for Quarantillo. So not only is Quarantillo landing more per minute, he's also more accurate in terms of the significant strikes. 
but strikes absorbed per minute. Barbosa takes 4.1. Quarantillo takes 5.72. So it's pretty much taking two more strikes per minute, but also landing about three to four more strikes per minute on the side of Quarantillo when it comes to the matchup against Barbosa. Defense, 58% striking defense rate for Barbosa to 40% striking defense for Quarantillo. He's not that great defensively. He gets hit a lot. He's been rocked. He's been hurt in a lot of his fights. Um, he has problems with guys who are more technical than him, guys who have more power, and guys who are faster. All of those things are on the side of Barbosa in this fight. I know you're looking at Barbosa thinking he's old. He's on a losing streak. He hasn't looked the best. But man, I think Barbosa can get this done as an underdog. I really do. At first, I was originally siding with Billy Q because of the pressure, because of Barbosa's point in his career, because he's had issues with pressure fighters. But to be honest, I honestly think Barbosa can piece up Quarantillo on the feet. And that's why I make the, the comparison to the fight with uh, Edson Barbosa and Dan Hooker. Because I think that Billy Q is so reliant on the forward pressure that he leaves himself open for counters and the fastest fighter that Billy Q has ever fought aside from Shane Burgos is the man he's taken on here in the veteran in Edson Barbosa he's going to be quicker he's going to be slicker he's going to have more power the speed is going to be heavily on the side of Barbosa and I think he's just going to catch Billy Q coming in and light him up with body kicks low kicks calf kicks Switch kicks to the body, the left hook, the overhand right over the jab of Billy Q, the left hook to the body. I think he's going to piece up the legs to slow down Billy Q, work the body, and I think he's actually going to put him out with a body shot. Similar to the Dan Hooker fight, man, I see a lot of similarities between the Quarantillo and Barbosa fight and the... Barbosa and Hooker fight. You know, big step up in competition for Quarantillo, a step down in competition for Edson Barbosa, always fighting the best of the best. You can't always look at the records and think that Barbosa is past his prime and this and that. I don't think Barbosa is at the top of his game anymore, but I think he's got enough left in the tank to get past Quarantillo. But I think this is a very difficult fight for both guys because of the things I've touched on the pressure, the forward movement, the nonstop pressure of Barbosa or of Quarantillo is going to give Barbosa trouble. But the countering ability, the speed, the technical ability, and the power and swiftness of Barbosa in the kickboxing realm of the fight, and especially in the striking game on the feet, that's going to give Quarantillo a lot of trouble. And we've seen Quarantillo get hurt and rocked before. And I think Barbosa should be able to piece him up on counters as Quarantillo looks to forward pressure. So. Barbosa's a plus 150 underdog. I'm going to take the shot on the underdog, and I think I'm going to take Barbosa by a finish. I know some people think it probably goes to decision, but I think it gets to the point where Barbosa just keeps attacking the body, keeps landing good boxing combinations to the body, to the head, mixing it up between high level, mid level, and low level, and just starts to piece him up on the counter. And I'm going to go Edson Barbosa via a third round TKO against Billy Q, and actually due to a body shot. So Edson Jr. Barbosa as the plus 150 underdog to defeat Billy Quarantillo via a third-round TKO. Just accumulation of damage, similar to the Dan Hooker fight like we've touched on multiple times in this breakdown. But give me the underdog in Barbosa. Give me the veteran. He's quicker. He's slicker. He's more technical. He's fought much better competition. And I think that this step down in competition is going to be good for Edson. So Edson Barbosa to defeat Billy Quarantillo via third-round TKO with a body shot. And now we move to the main event of the evening in a battle in the UFC's featherweight division. A phenomenal main event. No chance that this couldn't be the main event in the featherweight division between the number two ranked former featherweight champion. The man who beats everybody in the division, unless your name is Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. In the number two ranked Max Blessed Holloway coming into the fight with a record of 23 victories. 
and seven defeats. But out of those seven defeats, three of them come to one man in the featherweight champion and Alexander Volkanovsky. And then he's going up against the number, what is it, number three ranked? Number four ranked Arnold Almighty Allen, who comes in with a record of 19 victories with only one lone defeat. Max Holloway versus Arnold Allen. I did a YouTube video on this months ago, hyping up the fight. It's a great fight, a great matchup. And I think my overall pick and breakdown of the fight is a little different now than it was back then. Because I don't think I have gave a prediction in the video, but I might have. But going off this fight, man, I mean, we'll look at the statistics real quick. 23-7 and seven for Holloway, 19-1 and one for Arnold Allen. 5'11 for Holloway, 5'8 for Arnold Allen, so 3-inch height advantage for the former champion in Holloway. 69-inch reach for Holloway to a 70-inch reach for Allen. So even though he's at a 3-inch height disadvantage, he's going to be at a 1, or a 3-inch height advantage in the side of Holloway, he's going to be at a 1-inch reach disadvantage on the side of Allen. So Allen is going to be shorter but longer in terms of using their reach, but I think the man who uses this, his reach better is on the side of the former champion in Holloway. Leg reach, 42-inch leg reach for Holloway, 39-inch leg reach for Arnold Allen. So it's going to be a 3-inch leg reach advantage aside from a 1-inch reach disadvantage on the side of Holloway. Uh, win percentages, I don't really think we need to get into for this fight. Significant strikes, 7.24 landed per minute on the side of Max Holloway. Insane volume, insane activity. 3.4 significant strikes landed per minute for Arnold Allen. So it's he's doubling him up in terms of significant strikes landed per minute. Significant strike percentages, not only is he doubling him up, but he's actually he's also more accurate with a 47% significant strike accuracy rate on the side of Holloway to a 42% significant strike accuracy rate on the side of the Almighty One in Arnold Allen. Strikes absorbed per minute, Holloway takes more damage, 4.89 to 2.25 on the side of Arnold Allen. So he's doubling up you know, basically doubling, tripling up the amount of strikes landed per minute on the side of Holloway, but he's also doubling up Arnold Allen in the amount of strikes he takes per minute, 4.89 to 2.25. So Arnold Allen is better defensively, and you can see that in the defense stat, 59% defense rate for Max Holloway to a 67% striking defense or defensive overall rate for Arnold Allen. When it comes to the grappling, 1.35 takedowns per 15-minute fight on the side of Allen. Um, 0.29 on the side of Holloway. Holloway can use his wrestling as good counters to forward pressure and striking, but for the most part, he just uses his wrestling defensively to stay on the feet, but he's never had the greatest, um, I was going to say never had the greatest takedown defense, but he does. He's just been taken down more in recent fights by the likes of Alexander the Great Volkanovsky. 0.29 takedowns per 15-minute fight, 1.35 for Allen, 53% takedown accuracy on the side of Holloway to a 50% takedown accuracy for Arnold Allen, but Allen also goes more heavily in the wrestling department. But I expect this fight to play out on the feet. Uh, takedown defense rates, 84% takedown defense for Holloway to 78 per 76% takedown accuracy rate or takedown defense rate. I'm sorry, I'm talking too fast here for Allen. So 76% takedown defense on the side of Arnold Allen to 84% takedown defense on the side of Max Blessed Holloway. 0.33 submission average for Holloway to 0.37 for Arnold Allen. That doesn't really mean too much. But look, when we break down this fight, Max Holloway at this point in his career, in his career a lot of people believe that this is going to be the passing of the torch for Max Holloway, that this is going to be the young up-and-comer who finally cracks the chin of Max Holloway, puts him out, beats him, and then Holloway goes away, maybe goes up to 55. 
takes a break, whatever. Listen, a lot of people thought that Yair Rodriguez was going to be the guy to beat Max Holloway. I believe I might have picked Yair Rodriguez, but I'm not 100% sure. And the fight was close and competitive, but Holloway took over in the championship rounds, used his wrestling more than we ever saw before, offensive wrestling when it was more defensive earlier in his career, and he seemed to evolve. But he goes in and fights Alexander Volkanovsky in the third fight and gets absolutely dominated. Holloway was too quick. He was, or I'm sorry, Volkanovsky was too quick. He was too good on the counter. He was piecing up Max Holloway. The striking defense was non-existent for the majority of the fight. And it looked a lot different than the second fight between the two, which took place at UFC 251 on Fight Island. So I think that Max Holloway is becoming more hittable recently in his UFC career, especially lately. He's become more hittable. He has some issues with speed. But at the same time, I think he's the more technical striker. I think he has more volume to offer on the feet than Arnold Allen. Much more five-round experience, much more championship experience. And I just think he's the overall cleaner fighter. And I think the clean technique of Holloway is going to play a big difference or play a big factor in this fight against the up-and-comer in Allen. Now, Arnold Allen has some very good things that he does as well. He's very good at getting the outside foot against the orthodox fighter. Loves getting that right outside foot, the lead outside foot. Very good left cross into the left high kick like he caught Sadiq Yusuf with. Very good ability to get off on an angle to land that straight left down the middle. He also has big power. Arnold Allen doesn't look like a guy who has a ton of power in his fights, but if he starts letting those hands go, man, he'll put everything he has into his punches and he'll rock you and hurt you. Now he knocked out Dan Hooker and Hooker's dropped down to 45 and that was the biggest win of his career. And I believe it is the biggest win of his career for Arnold Allen is that knockout victory over Dan Hooker. But you're looking at a Dan Hooker who hadn't been down to the 45 weight class since like 2017, 2018, and who was heavily depleted going into that fight. You have to take the weight cut into consideration in that fight. Yes, Arnold Allen looked great. Tagged him with a straight left, tagged him with a right hook, tagged him with a left high kick, a straight left down the middle. I mean, he was piecing him up, knees and elbows in the clinch and got the TKO victory. Huge win. Not taking away anything from Arnold Allen in that fight. But at the same time, it was a much depleted version of Dan Hooker, a man kind of like, you know, the, the story we talked about, Cody Garbrandt at 125. It's the same story with Dan Hooker at 45. It's the same story with Dillashaw trying to drop down to 25. And the story goes on and on and on. Very few fighters who are at the top level of their weight class that drop down in terms of hoping to revitalize their career after going on a skid, it usually doesn't work out for them. And that was the story for Dan Hooker. So it was a much depleted version of Dan Hooker, but... Arnold Allen still rocked him. He still hurt him. The speed, the power in his punches, the straight left, the right hook, the overhand left, the uppercuts, the left head kick off the cross was unbelievable. He's got big power, does Arnold Allen. The fight against Sadiq Yusuf, it was back and forth, but Arnold Allen had the bigger moments. The left cross into the left high kick, which rocked Sadiq, and then dropping him with a straight left hand in the first round off that angle. He was able to control the wrist, get on an angle against the orthodox fighter in Sadiq, and bang that straight left hand down the middle. Arnold Allen is very technical. He's very crisp. He has very sneaky ability to land the shots at openings that the opponents don't see coming. And Max Holloway's been in there with the best of the best. He's He's been in there with the best of the best. I mean, Yair Rodriguez, Dustin Poirier, Alexander Volkanovsky three times, Conor McGregor, um, you know, Kelvin Cater put on a masterclass against Kelvin Cater. The best we've ever seen Max Holloway look was in that fight against Kelvin Cater, a boxing clinic, constant combinations, one, twos, body shots, straights to the body, jab, left hook, right hand, jab, right cross, left hook, jab, right cross, left hook, right cross to the body, right cross to the body, left hook, one, one, two, two, three. I mean, he was mixing up his boxing. He was seeing punches coming, slipping, 
rolling, slip, slip, pull, roll, roll underneath. His defensive head movement was unbelievable. But in his recent fights against Yair Rodriguez, in his recent fights against Alexander Volkanovsky, the guy's become much more hittable. He's been hittable with some big shots. He takes big shots. His chin can always take them. But in that last fight against Yair or against Alexander Volkanovsky, man, he got pieced up. I can't believe he survived, but he did. But he got dominated. Volk was too fast for him. He had a big speed advantage. He was dominating him. He was landing big, big punches. Piecing him up, bloodying him up, cutting him up. And it just looked like Holloway was lost in there. And is that a factor of the damage catching up to Holloway? Taking too many punches, catching up to Holloway? The 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 older age of Holloway at this point? I mean, the guy's not old. He's, what, 30, 31? Going up against a younger fighter in Arnold Allen? Sure, but we've never seen Arnold Allen go five rounds before. And we've seen him slow down in the third round of fights because he's so explosive. He's so big on the power. If Arnold Allen hurts you, I mean, it's not going to be clean technical shots that he tries to take you out with. Big right hooks, big left hooks, big uppercuts, big overhands, big knees, big head kicks. The guy's going to be throwing bombs at Max Holloway if he hurts him. But he is technical with his footwork. He's technical with his movement. Always looking to get the outside foot against the opponent. Left kick to the body, check right hook. Beautiful check right hook from southpaw. Straight left hand down the middle. The only thing that I think will catch Holloway in the early rounds, that check right hook to the straight left hand, man. The straight left hand of Arnold Allen, even though he beat Kelvin Cater by a technicality due to the knee injury, um, he was catching Kelvin Cater later on in that first round with the straight left down the middle. And it, there's no windup. It's just from point A to point B, just bop. But, but right down the middle, and it was giving Cater some issues. The speed of Arnold Allen is a big problem, but we've never seen him go into the championship rounds, and we have a guy in Max Holloway who's been accustomed to fighting in five-round fights, fighting in championship fights. I mean, when was the last time we saw Max Holloway in a three-round fight? It had to be back in, uh, who was the last time, actually? We could check that. I don't even know. Let's see. What was the last time Max Holloway fought in a three-round fight? Uh, Ricardo Lamas, I think. Yeah. June of 2016 was the last time that Max Holloway fought in a three-round fight. The Pettis fight was a five-rounder. Both Aldo fights were five-rounders. Ortega, five-rounder. Dustin Poirier, five-rounder. Frankie Edgar, five-rounder. Volkanovski, five-rounder. Yair, five-rounder. Kelvin Cater, five-rounder. This guy is accustomed to five-round fights. We've never seen Arnold Allen in a five-round fight. Now, does that mean that he doesn't have the cardio to go five rounds? That doesn't necessarily mean that. We just don't have the tape and the uh, history and historical evidence to go off of the fact that he can go a hard 25 minutes. I do not think he can go a hard 25 minutes against a guy in Max Holloway. The volume of Holloway, the pressure, the clean boxing, you know, the, the suffocation of Max Holloway in those championship rounds are going to take a toll on Arnold Allen. The early rounds, Arnold Allen can catch Max Holloway. I think he does have a chance of knocking out Holloway. He's got big power. The straight left doesn't have any windup. Holloway's become more hittable. I think there is a possibility that Arnold Allen catches Max Holloway with a big shot in the early rounds, hurts him, and finishes him. I think maybe he wins the first two rounds because he does hurt Holloway and has the bigger moments, and maybe he goes up on the scorecards. But in the late part of the third round, the fourth round, and the fifth round, that's all the blessed express, baby. Max Holloway's volume, his forward pressure, the experience in the five-round fights, it's just something I can't go against. But early on, Max Holloway has to be careful because Allen can crack. Allen is technical. He's very good at getting the outside foot, good lateral movement, no wind-up in the straight left hand, beautiful check right hook. He has the ability to hurt Max Holloway, and he's very technical in his own right. Don't think that I think 
that Arnold Allen doesn't have technical ability. He for 100% for sure does. Um, and it's going to give Holloway a lot of trouble early in the fight. But in those championship rounds, in the second half of that third round, that's where the Blessed Express is going to run down the tracks. And that's where it's going to run Arnold Allen over. And I think Max Holloway takes over big in the fourth and the fifth round with the volume, the boxing, the one twos, the one one twos, the one three two, the three two three, the one three two, two to the body, left hook, uppercuts, left hook to the body, one two, one two, one two, left hook, uppercut, left hook to the body, right hook to the body, the knees, the spinning back kicks. He's going to take over on the fourth and the fifth round, and he's going to win those rounds big. I think it is possible he gets a late finish in the championship rounds, but I'm going to bank on this fight going to decision, and I'm going to bank with the former champion in Holloway to get the job done, handing Arnold Allen his second professional MMA loss and his second loss inside the UFC after being on this street. You can't count that Kelvin Cater fight as a number one, a good fight to look at in terms of Arnold's ability to go five rounds, a good fight to look at in terms of Arnold's ability overall, or a good fight to look at in terms of how he does with the upper echelon of the division. You can't do that because Kelvin Cater got hurt like 10 seconds into the second round and he got hurt because he threw a flying knee, landed wrong and blew his ACL out in his other knee. You can't really take much from that fight. Yes, Allen landed some good shots. Probably won the first round. He had the bigger shots, hurt Kelvin at certain points. But at the same time, you can't really take much from that fight. We saw him get tired in the third round against Sadiq, get more tired. We saw him kind of just pop shotting um, Arnold Allen. And in the fight with Sadiq Youssef, it wasn't the big power shots that caught Arnold Allen. It was the straight punch, just the pop pop, just the pop pop, looking to land volume, just looking to touch him. And that's what Max Holloway is a master of. He's a master of volume. He's a master of touching up the opponent. Big, heavy combinations, multiple punch combinations, heavy boxing ability, great straight punches. The volume is going to drown Arnold Allen in the championship rounds. I don't think he gets a finish, but I could see a late fourth or fifth round TKO for Max Holloway just being too much for him. But at the same time, I'm going to go with a decision. I'm going to go with Max Blessed Holloway to defeat another up-and-coming contender in the featherweight division via a 48-47 unanimous decision over Arnold Allen. So give me Max Blessed Holloway, the number two ranked featherweight in the division, to defeat the number four ranked streaking contender in Arnold Almighty Allen, handing him his second loss in professional MMA and his second loss inside the UFC via 48-47 unanimous decision. From a betting perspective, I don't like this fight anyway. I don't like over-unders. I don't like... Allen is a dog. I don't like Max Holloway as a favorite because I think we have a lot of questions, not only in terms of how Allen's cardio will hold up in the championship rounds, how he'll do against the biggest test of his career, but also the durability questions and issues of Holloway. The fact he's become more hittable, the fact that Arnold Allen does have big power and can let his hands and feet go with power to potentially hurt Max at this point in his career. There's too many questions. I don't like to bet, but the pick is the former champion in Max Holloway to defeat Arnold Almighty Allen or Almighty Arnold Allen via 48-47 unanimous decision. All right, that's going to be it for my UFC Kansas City preview, predictions, and breakdown. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many more. This podcast will be broken up into individual fight segments and uploaded to the YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast at the Touch Em Up Podcast. You can leave a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other platforms that allow you to leave a review. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend.